Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So I am Sage Cole. This is August 3rd, 2017 at the Freiburg New Church Assembly. And this is our first lecture this morning. Uh, my title today is Mothers and Sons in the Book of Genesis. So uh, this morning, with about a half an hour or so, um, I hope that in this time to stir up in each of you this morning some thought, some wondering, and maybe a little bit of discomfort and questioning, and hopefully some spiritual insight around the role role of mothers in the word, and specifically in the progression of the biblical narrative in the story of Genesis. I'm going to focus my talk on three mothers, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, three of the women who are associated with the first three biblical patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who, as we know, set the stage for the birth of the Jewish nation. Now, as I shared with you in my last lecture, I will not be able to delve into all of the natural and spiritual dimensions of these women's stories, but I'll instead hone in on one aspect of how each woman responded to her circumstances, specifically in their roles as mothers. I want to look at how Sarah laughs, how Rebecca schemes, and how Rachel endures. So first, let's remember where the stories of Sarah and Abraham, Rebecca and Isaac, and Rachel and Jacob fit into the biblical narrative in the unfolding of the inner sense. And of course, remember, there are many other women involved in the story, other mothers. These men had more than one wives and sometimes made servants who they bore children to, but we're not going to delve into all of those stories. But let's not forget those unnamed women. So the story of the patriarchs shows up really after our last story of Noah's Ark that I spoke about. Adam and Eve in their journey in and then out of the Garden of Eden, as you remember, represent the formation and then the destruction of the earliest church, which can be looked at as the church in the celestial person. Noah and his family, who are saved from the flood and then scattered after the fall of the Tower of Babel, represent the formation and then the dissolution of the church in a spiritual person. And then Abraham's call is the beginnings of the journey of the formation of the church in the natural person. And this is the journey that we human beings, I would suggest, are most involved in. And so it's this story that is really most applicable to our lives. And it's really this story that takes up the bulk of the Old Testament. Like Noah is the remnant of the goodness which God saves when the most ancient church is destroyed, Abraham is the remnant that God saves from the Noetic church, from which the Israelite church will be formed. It will be this church, through its journey into Egypt, its enslavement, its wandering in the wilderness, its reception of the Ten Commandments, and on and on, that will teach us most directly about what it is to develop in the world as natural men and natural women. And it is from this church that our Lord Jesus Christ will come, and bring about the Christian era, and then, of course, make way for the new church, which we proclaim is coming to be today. So while the names Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who primarily define these generations, are the names we hear most, the women in the story, of course, had a bit to do with its unfolding as well. Now, before we consider some of the particulars of these three women, I want to step back with you for a minute and invite you to think with me about how we hold these stories, 
how we hold their spiritual depth, while also standing firmly in a time and a place that operates with very different mores around the roles of men and women, at least very different in many parts of the world. I would hope that here, in this place, we could boldly state that we operate with very different mores. We hold that women have the right to their own property, to work, to be involved in inquiry and shaping religious thought, to preach and to teach. And conversely, we believe as well that men can be nurturers, that men can be fully involved in the raising and care of children, even the upkeep and beautifying of the home, even sewing or handcrafts if they so choose. Not only do we live in a time and a place and a community where men and women are enabled to flip-flop and share the roles associated with being out in the world and in the home, with being in their intellect and in their will, we also live in a time and in a place and in a community where all of our efforts and motivation are no longer centered around the bringing forth of as many children as possible or the taking over and inhabiting of a new land. While there were deep divisions between the roles of men and women in biblical times, in one way they were very united because they shared a primary purpose, the motivation of giving birth to children and caring for the next generation, making space for them to live and thrive. While certainly this remains an aspect of our human societies today, lest we all die out, there are now all sorts of other pursuits that we can lift up as central for the next, other than bringing up children. In some ways, this is a gift. Human beings now have time to explore creative pursuits. But in other ways, in my estimation, estimation, sometimes this is a curse. Sometimes we've lost sight in our current time of of this primary objective of the human journey caring for the well-being of future generations. Sometimes we think our purpose in this life is more about our own happiness, our own glory, power, esteem, or success. And we're not always keeping in focus how what we do today impacts what the generations of those beyond us will experience. I, I, I offer that as something from the biblical narrative that perhaps we would want to think about and care for more in this time and in this place. But from my perspective, aside from this small jewel, and maybe there are other things that you all treasure from biblical times that you would like to bring forward, but for my money, that's the one that I will lift up. But other than that, I really would not wish to go back there. There isn't, from my perspective, a lot to treasure about how these early people operated or much that we would want to repeat. And in fact, there's a lot that's quite distressing. I often wonder why God would cause us to continually return again and again to these ancient stories, even with the revelation of the inner sense when they depict a world that is wrought with so much inequality and injustice. I do take great comfort in Swedenborg's revelation of the inner sense and its thrust always towards growth and movement. It's called to a new church, to a holy city beyond the divisions and injustices of the past. And yet it is the stories of all the ways that this holy city has not yet come to be where we spend a lot of our time. This feels most apparent to me when we're taking on the task like this one for today of studying the stories of women. 
While some, like those I will speak about this morning, are given a more complex narrative, more of a role in the story, many of the women are unnamed. As I was preparing my lecture today, I couldn't help but think of the generations of women, not in our very distant past, that have gone unnamed, right here in our own community. Women whose stories have gone untold, whose wisdom has not been recognized, whose voices have not been heard. While at this year's FNCA session, seven out of 19 of the lectures will be offered by women, which is a pretty estimable ratio, I suppose. I wonder if there's been a year when that ratio has even approached half. And there were certainly decades when the ratio was most assuredly zero. I can't help but think of Reverend Louis Dole and Anita and their pivotal role in the formation of this camp and the development of the church and its theology and understanding. And while giving birth to George Dole up the street at the Freiburg New Church Parsonage certainly did quite a lot for the theological development of our church community, I can't help but argue that it was actually Anita herself who would leave the theological legacy that would impact the greatest number of spiritual inquirers over the years in her deeply wise, deeply loving, and deeply practical Bible study notes. How many of you here have consulted the Dole notes? How many of you consult them regularly? And yet, to my knowledge, I imagine Anita was not invited to speak in the lecture hall. I hope I'm wrong, and I'm happy to be corrected but I don't believe she ever gave a lecture. Not lifting up and honoring, making space for and respecting women's wisdom and intellect is one of the harms of the patriarchal culture that we continue to seek to transform. But the other harm is certainly the lack of inclusion of men in the circle of affection, of nurture, and care of children and the home. While this harm is less visible because it doesn't have anything to do with notoriety, with being published or recognized for voicing ideas, this harm is, I'm certain, felt in the bones and collective memories and felt experiences of generations of people who grew up without the care and affection of their fathers, perhaps without even their presence as they were forced to be away from the home and all things pertaining to it. This has dishonored them and their full humanity as well as it has dishonored women. It is seeing the harm of patriarchy for both sexes that to me helps to create the most egalitarian footing for us to return to the biblical narrative. Women shouldn't be the only ones who read the stories and don't find themselves. Men too must recognize that they, as the full persons they are called to be, are not there as well that the boxed-in identities of both are lacking and represent only a fraction of what human beings are called to be. I remember distinctively attending my first convention as a seminarian and being in a large meeting with my knitting bag with me, and I was doing some handwork while listening to the deliberations, and a certain older male minister, who I will not name, said to me, not in an unfriendly way, but in a way that stung, aren't you being a good church lady? <laughs> As a woman seeking ordination, I did not want to be a good church lady. And at the next meeting, I quickly put away my knitting. But as the years have passed, as I've become more confident in my ordination and my role as a leader in the church, I return to that memory and I think, 
What's wrong with being a good church lady? I am a church lady and you're a church man. I realized how I was buying into the belief that to be ordained and on an equal footing as a clergy person, I had to put away the things that had too much to do with women. This has characterized a lot of the women's movement, that we can be as powerful and strong and capable as men, that we can do it all, but we need to do it all the same way that men do it. This to me is a destructive notion and it devalues the historically female domain. We need to hear women's voices in the world and in the workplace, and we still need to raise children and care for the home. We need to do all of these things. We need to honor and respect all of the things and everyone needs to get involved in the ways that work for them, in their families and in their relationships. So how do we look at these early Old Testament stories of mothers? How can we see them? How can we look at the inner sense of their stories while acknowledging the unjust circumstances within which they lived and in ways in which we still live. I want to take a stab at sharing with you how I'm today answering this question, saying outright that I am in no way definitively at the end of my inquiry. My hope is that this is not the end of the conversation, but is instead the beginning. I hope that you will disagree with me and bring up new thoughts and new ideas, and that we'll continue to do this work I want to look at Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel, as they are the matriarchs who give birth to the sons who will be the central players in the patriarchal dialogue. It's their willingness to be mothers that propels the story forward. And at a time in history where the ability to bear children, specifically male children, was the central goal and aim of life, it was attending to this work, their birthing and care of their sons, that grounded this purpose and mission. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I would have seen that purpose as entirely demeaning and limited. Now, as I turn 40 this year and raise my own boys, I honor this work. I recognize its importance and its meaning. It was the central aim of life. And in part, it need continue to be. Women, while not allowed in the realm of men at this time, and not given the freedom that men enjoyed, were hugely honored and important to the communities of which they were a part. Men had certain powers and freedoms, but also they had their own responsibilities that limited them and shaped their role. The roles and expectations of life were much more fixed. And it is within these roles and expectations that the story unfolds. And much of what makes the stories interesting is the way that the women in particular often defied these expectations. Just as Jesus would come and defy the mores and expectations of his time to continue the work, the central work of the biblical narrative and of the faith journey of moving the world forward in justice and in love. So let's first look at Sarah. We got a little taste of her this morning in our chapel service. Sarah laughs when she overhears the three angels who come to visit Abraham's tent, who tell him that in one year's time, at the age of 90, she will bear a son. She laughs and then she later lies about it when questioned for fear that we might suppose of being flip, of not trusting that all things are possible in God's eyes. Laughter whether her laughter was out of 
incredulous joy, out of sarcasm, out of disbelief or irony. It's a spontaneous event. And when when laughter comes to Sarah, it's this laughter that characterizes everything about the birth of her son. Isaac will be named from this laughter. To the, this laughter, when we all experience it, can at times touch on the truth being beyond what we see, being seemingly impossible or hilarious. And yet it is, it is the seemingly impossibility of laughter, this impossibility that makes it possible for Sarah to birth her child and that characterizes everything about her delivery. I wonder if you can think of a time in your life when you have been given the information that something incredible will happen that you could not imagine. If maybe it was a nervous laughter was your response, how could this be? How could this possible be possible? Think about her for a second. She's married to a man, Abraham, who has received this call from God to go to Canaan and to make a great nation. We, we don't know that he shared this with her, but we can imagine that he, she has the information that Abraham was told that he would bear more, have more descendants than the stars of the sky. And yet for years, she has been barren. Can you imagine the pressure and stress that would be to follow your husband into this great unknown and yet not be able to participate in what he believes is coming into being? And after years of maybe even giving up on his dream, giving up on his faith and belief, being told that it will come to be. Having known women who have become pregnant after much struggle and ordeal, I'll tell you there can be great laughter and great incredulity when that promise is fulfilled. And of course, on a spiritual level, this story applies to the promise of new life in any number of aspects. After reaching that point when things seem impossible. A job offer after a long search that had been abandoned. Love newly awakened late in life. A new awakened zest for living after an unbearable sadness lifts unexpectedly when we did not believe it was possible. Sarah's laughter is a spontaneous aha to the absurdity of God's promise always defying our expectations. Now, Sarah's son, Isaac, will go on to marry Rebecca. And with Rebecca, I want to focus on the aspect of her actions in response to her circumstances, where she schemes to make sure that her second son will receive her father's birth, their father's birthright. Rebecca's story is quite involved. It's full of trickery and intrigue. But this trickery is what will shape the following generations in important ways. Now I want us to to step back a little and look at the Swedenborgian insights into the representation of these three generations. Similarly to the three churches from the Garden of Eden to Noah and to the Israelite church, the three patriarchs also represent these three divisions. Abraham, the celestial church. Isaac, the spiritual or intellectual church. And then Jacob, the natural. Abraham is like an infant, going where he will. Isaac and Rebekah really exemplifies this, scheming, thinking, wondering how things will come to be. And then Jacob, leading out into the world and fathering the 12 
sons who will represent the 12 tribes of Israel. When we look at Rebecca's story, we can really see this thinking, this spiritual level of operation. In this sphere of rationality and thinking, it makes sense to me that there's some scheming involved. I wonder if you can think of times when you've had to sort of scheme to make something come into be. I almost think, obviously, politics doesn't have a very positive association these days, but often we need to be political to make things come into the world. We need to know who to talk to and how to talk to them, what to say and who to say, who to say it to. And while Rebecca's actions perhaps seem quite unrighteous, it's important to remember that she is seeking to manifest a divine declaration. While she is pregnant with her twin sons, she feels them moving and struggling in her womb. And she inquires of the Lord, is all of, is, if all is well, why am I like this? And she receives this reply. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. She's given that, those words from the Lord while she is pregnant with her sons. And so the scheming that takes place later on for her to manage to, to help her younger son, Jacob, receive Isaac's blessing is really a part of manifesting and bringing that declaration from the Lord into being. You could argue that Rebecca was fulfilling this call. I couldn't help when I thought about Rebecca thinking about the association we have today of helicopter moms. Have you heard that phrase before? The idea of mothers being way too involved in their children's lives and trying to orchestrate everything. And there's a very negative association with that. But if we think of that as an extreme, we have to recognize that even while it can always be, things can always be taken too far, there is a definite way in which mothers and fathers need to be involved in the lives of their children, helping to guide them and nurture them, helping to show them, to help them, helping them to see their gifts and their possibilities, and that their work in doing that will affect their children's lives and their children's journey. And so in a way, Rebecca is, rec- is representing that kind of involvement that really is necessary. I, I often think, why can't I, why can't I just be a sort of more celestial mother, accepting things as they are and just trusting that all will flow, instead of worrying? Mothers worry a lot, as I'm sure fathers do too. How, what's the best way to discipline my son when he is being like this? What's the best way to teach him and guide him? What will be the good, a good way to move forward? There's a lot of negotiating and sorting out in our minds when it comes to raising children and when it also comes to bringing any new creative endeavor into the world. And it can be very stressful and we can make wrong turns and yet it's necessary. It's necessary that we engage our intellects in the journey and it's not always easily clear, like the call of Abraham, to go forward. On a spiritual level, Swedenborg describes how it is necessary for Jacob to receive Isaac's birthright to rule the younger, to rule as the younger son. Not because this is necessarily as it should be, but because it's one of those necessary compromises for our spiritual development. Esau represents goodness and Jacob truth. In an ideal, perfect, heavenly world, Esau would rule Jacob. Goodness would rule truth. But, that is, but in this natural plane, in this stage of the church's development, we can't be led in that way. 
we're not quite good enough for goodness to lead. We need truth to go first. Jacob must be first, even though it requires all of this intrigue for it to happen. And then lastly, Leah, uh, Rachel, and I will speak about Leah and Rachel. As you remember, Leah and Rachel are both wives of Jacob. Jacob goes to, uh, the, to a new land to find a wife, and he wor- has to work for Rachel and Leah's father, Laban. First, he agrees, as you remember from the story, to work for seven years that he might marry Rachel. He works for seven years, he toils, and then Laban says, sorry, you have to marry my older daughter first. And so he marries Leah, and he has to work another seven years before he marries Rachel. There's something about endurance for both of these women. Rachel has to wait 14 years before she marries. And Leah has to be the second choice. She endures life with a husband whose heart is not necessarily hers. And Rachel endures having to wait years before she can be married, and then before she is able to bear a child. This sets both women up in some ways to be quite unhappy. Leah knowing that she's the second choice and Rachel waiting so long to be married and have children. I really can connect to the experience of endurance and I wonder if you can as well. The story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah is about life on the natural plane. And often life in the natural plane is about endurance. It's not about spontaneous, miraculous pregnancies at age 90. And it's not always about complex schemes to shift the course of events. It's often just about life, working and waiting, which is so much of this time that we spend in the world. And it's these women, as you remember, Rachel will give birth to Benjamin and to Joseph, Joseph who will have such a pivotal role in the journey into Egypt. And then Leah will give birth to to sons, which will include Judah. And Judah will be the father of the Israelite nation. So both women, they become the mothers of this next stage of the church. And their names are remembered. Their heritage persists. Sarah's laughter, we remember. Rebecca's scheming. And Rachel and Leah and their endurance. They're legacies for not just women, but for all of us. And as we know, this biblical story is for all of us. The story of men is not just for women, for men, and the story of women is not just for women. They're stories that have to do with each of us. It's a story of where we've been. It's a story of parts of who we are, but I really hope we can all acknowledge and hold that it's not a story of all we can be, that that story is not yet told. Each era of the church is always striving beyond what was before, striving towards a better, freer, more wise, more loving world, and that continues today. Even as I sometimes fear that returning again and again to these old stories can be harmful to us, as we seek to grow beyond injustice and inequality and oppression, as we seek to overturn these limited, constricting roles, even as I fear that returning can bring us back Perhaps it's returning again and again with more people, with more varieties of people that will help us to evolve our consciousness further. As the ranks of biblical scholars begin to grow and diversify, as we continue to return to these ancient texts together, perhaps that's what's important. 
because there certainly is much damage that can come from forgetting where we've been. As we bring everyone to the table to speak and to listen and inquire into our spiritual heritage, to see what it was and to together shape what it will be. Swedenborg really helps us to point towards a new way of seeing, a new way of seeing into the spiritual realm, the patterns of human life, into the biblical story where differences are valued, where male and female are a complementary whole, where love and wisdom are distinguishably one. And yet, of course, even as he points us to this more beautiful potentiality, he himself has flaws. He bases his understanding of men and women on bad science, as Devin pointed out the other night, and also on observations of men and women in a particular time, in a particular place. And I think I do have time to read my favorite passage from Divine Love and Wisdom, or excuse me, from Conjugal Love, that graded on me from my three years of seminary, that I think we just need to remember he did write. With all of the beautiful descriptions of this complementarity, he really describes men and women in terms of how they functioned in a particular time and in a particular place. So um, here, we ha- here we have his description of men and women. A male's motivation is wanting to know, understand, and become wise. To know in childhood, to understand in adolescence and young manhood, and to become wise from young manhood to old age. This shows that his nature or disposition inclines towards forming an intellect. So it means he is born to become intellectual, but this cannot happen except that of love. So the Lord adds love to him too, according to his reception, that is, according to his wanting to become wise. A man applies himself to things that are intellectual or where intellect predominates. Most of them are in the market and the public interest. His manner always comes out of a predominance of intellect. That is why the activities of his life, which are to be taken as his manner, are rational. And if not, he wants them to seem so. You can also see a masculine rationality in every manly quality he has. His figure is different and quite distinct from a feminine figure. In addition to this, he has fertility. This is from no source other than intellect, for it is from the truth that comes out of good in him. By the same token, a woman is born to be willing in response to a man's intellect or in other words, to be the love of a man's wisdom because she is formed by his wisdom. This too can be demonstrated from her motivation, the way she applies herself, her manner, and her figure. A woman's motivation is an inclination to love knowledge, learning, and wisdom, not in herself, but in a man, and thus to love him. For you cannot love a man just for a figure that seems human, but for the endowment that makes him human. A woman applies herself to things done by hand, called sewing, embroidery, and so forth, for clothing, beautifying herself, and increasing her attractiveness. She also applies herself to the various jobs known as domestic that are attached to men's jobs, called again jobs of the market. Women get this from an inclination to join together, be wives, and in this way, be one with their husbands. Really struggled with that one in seminary. It's important just to remember that Swedenborg 
had this great, incredible vision, and in many ways he describes love and wisdom as complementary and connected and in every person. And yet often when he tries to draw examples, he uses his own experiences of the world. And he focuses on them and then tries to make them gospel. And sometimes as Swedenborgians, we've looked at those and perpetuated that perspective. But I, I don't believe Swedenborg intended for the new church to be an implementation of the 18th century, but instead to be a new church that is moving into the new world. So it's important to remember that while he does give us new gifts to return to the scriptures and to see the way in which all of these stories fit in everybody's individual lives. Even his vision is shaped by his limitations. I guess that's all I want to share about that. The last thing I want to say is that at this last year's convention, I was sitting in the community with Reverend Anna Wuffenden, and we were both doing our handcrafts while the meetings were going on. And we looked at each other and said, this, this is as it should be. There's no reason that we have to relinquish the gifts and the talents of our foremothers just to be in this role as leaders in the world, that we can do both. And I think that is one of the ways that this new church is coming into be, that we all need to recognize the importance of all of the realms of life the home and the world, speaking and listening, love and wisdom, and see how those are manifesting in each of us individually and as a community. And honor those women of the past and the ways that within the circumstances they had for themselves, they lived by the best that they knew and sought to follow the Lord. And then see how we are being called to follow the Lord today. Thank you. Happy to. Happy to hear any comments or? I enjoyed that very much, but I have to tell you a little story about my youngest son. I taught my sons the crochet and net and cook and all those things. Well, Dana really loved to crochet. So when he first got together with Sue and they first sat their home together, um, she was crocheting after that. So each night, they would bring out their yarn and their crochet hooks, and he crocheted an African and she crocheted an African. Hmm, that's wonderful. It's not only, you know, yeah. men can, they can take yeah. on those kind of roles also. Right. Thank you, Martha. Here at the assembly, when I was much younger, I used to think it was impolite for people to be doing something else while they sure. were in a lecture. Uh -huh. And then I finally learned and was told that it helps a lot of people concentrate their mind on the lecture if they do something with their hands. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. <clears throat> okay, the, the story of uh, Isaac's long, the long wait for Isaac's coming into the world is similar to the long wait that brought Samuel into the world mm -hmm. and other significant Hannah. prophets. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, what I got out of those kind of stories. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but, uh, There's a lot of stories in scripture about women being infertile for a long time, right? right. Yeah. 
the other, yeah, the weight. Yeah. And Samuel was, was the great prophet that mm -hmm. oversaw David and mm -hmm. uh, Saul, uh, yep. Solomon, he was not there then. But, uh, Saul and David. Mm -hmm. Saul, mm -hmm. uh, and this great overseeing of all that. And, mm -hmm. uh, Isaac, oh, here's what I was going to say. Isaac uh, was the promised son. And don't forget Ishmael. Sure, of course. Ishmael was not the promised son. Mm -hmm. He was the, the father of all Philistines mm -hmm. and great trouble in, in the ancient world mm -hmm. there. Yeah. yeah, and Swedenborg has a lot of interesting things to say about Ishmael and Isaac in that era of the spiritual church being about the intellect. He, he describes Ishmael as like really the physical, this is, means this, whereas Isaac is sort of the higher intellect, the looking at love. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. I, I would love to get into all of the other figures because there are so many other women in the story that give birth to children that affect the whole journey. Yeah, to the Today's first. Well, and that's one of the things we believe today, exactly, that there are these communities that affect how we live today. Um, and, right. Anything else? In the back? Hi. Hi. Um, I was just thinking about the laughter thing and how, what, what, I thought of it was that, you know, what brought on the laughter uh -huh. was probably fear mm, and the, like, sure. that nervousness, but yeah. it made me think about all the different, the characters of, that women play, having to follow their husbands into the flood, uh -huh. and then to have this child proceed, having a child in their 80s, uh -huh. and, then, and so on and so on, the uh -huh. things that women had to bear up in the name of, like, that reading. Right, <laughs> right. Being apart for their man. Yeah. Yeah, in general, with looking at these three stories, I couldn't help the way it's shaped. You know, the men sort of hear from God and then they kind of go. And the women have a lot of work to do behind the scenes, you know, burying the children and then Rebecca's scheming. There's, it's an interesting, um, it's not spoken of, but it's, I think they had a harder lot, that's all. <laughs> yeah, Jane? I love the comment you made, because, you know, we talk all the time about the importance of truth leading. Yeah. And you, the way I heard you say this mm -hmm. is, this is necessary at this stage. Right. But you think about a world with good leading. Yeah. It just opens up this whole different way of looking. Yeah. Anita writes about this in the Dole Notes that you know, in heaven Esau will be in charge. In heaven Esau will lead, but now, in our this goal world. Is to bring heaven to earth. Exactly. So maybe it's happening already. I don't know. That's. I mean, that's certainly one of the Swedenborgian understandings that I think we could develop further when we think about how men and women relate is everywhere. Love is the stuff. Love is the substance. Truth is just a, the form of that love and is nothing without it. Um, and if women represent that more directly and they've been out of the picture and pushed aside, then there's a way in which that could certainly be a part of this new church. Red Wing? Um, actually, my first name is Rebecca. Oh, okay, Rebecca. Uh-huh. But, um, which I love that story about her. Yeah. And one of the things I just want to lift up is that I see her scheming as part of her intuitive knowledge mm. about her sons. Mm. She knows both sons very intimately. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, she knows that Jacob is more suited mm -hmm. to be in that role. Yeah. You know, of that. Mm -hmm. um, Esau was, um, I have a, I'm kind of confused as to why Esau is represented by Swedenborg as a business because he was a little doubtful. 
was, he was rough, yeah. He was out to, you know, undo his little brother, and he right. was just literally throwing a foot in that kind of thing. Right. Well, I think there's, um, you know, the, the parallels are good, truth, will, intellect. So he's very associated with willfulness and the way he'll sell his birthright very quickly. And, um, and I think that's a good point. He's not that good, which is why he can't be the leader, because our goodness wasn't very good at that point right. in history. So in a sense, mm-hmm. I, I just want to lift up the intuitive, intuitive note, uh, knowledge that women mm. have of their children. Mm. And sometimes having to manipulate their husbands <laughs> really good. And quite a creative way. Uh-huh. Um, to kind of get that accomplished. It's an interesting perspective. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, and certainly in a time when they didn't have a lot of power, probably that was the only way to get anything done was behind the scenes. Hugh? A couple of things in, in the Jacob Esau story. Um, Jacob representing truth, he had to take the lead right. for a period of time, but later on when he returns to the land of Canaan, he has to submit to his brother, right. which does signify then that love right. must right. be the leader. Right. Uh, but the other thing is that there were a number of times where the Lord was telling, for example, Abraham, listen to your wife. Mm-hmm. For example, mm-hmm. Abraham did not want to send away um, Ishmael. Mm-hmm. Right. And the Lord said, right listen to your wife. Right. I think that story is repeated a number of times mm-hmm. as a lesson mm-hmm. that we could carry forward. Sometimes it's useful to listen to the wife. Or the <laughs> I'm glad you're saying that. That's probably helpful in your Always marriage. <laughs> Thank you, Hugh. That's a good point. Yeah, there was ridicule from mm-hmm. uh, Hagar right. to Sarah right. because right. she hadn't conceived yet. Right. There was ridicule uh, in the two wives of right. Elkanah Right. The parents of Samuel. Right. So right. ridicule is the way I understood it to be the reason why uh, Hagar and Ishmael was sent off. She was making their lives, they were making Sarah and Isaac's lives miserable. And Sarah, right. If the, if the uh, Philistines had not been such a menace to the Hebrews, the mm-hmm. chosen people, mm-hmm. and if Ishmael and Hagar had not starved out in the wilderness, maybe there wouldn't have been all this uh, Philistine problem. Right. Historical. Right. Right. Nancy? Yesterday was Annunciation Day, Hmm. and the the whole uh, idea was that um, Mary was willing, and Mm. um, that's what she said, Mm -hmm. thy will be done. Mm -hmm. And um, she was we were being built up to that willingness mm-hmm. of the woman mm-hmm. to receive mm-hmm. what she needed to receive mm-hmm. to bear the King of Kings and Lord of Lords into the world. Mm-hmm. So uh, our willingness to be who we are meant to be mm-hmm. is basically all we need to know. It's pretty central. If we don't have that, we don't have much, do we? Yeah. yeah. And in the Catholic Church, I think Mary, she holds a really lovely um, place for women. And that's one thing in the Protestant Church where we, you know, we have the great story of Swedenborg seeing Mary in heaven. And she's just like, that's not about me. She's very humble and I'm not a great person of heaven. And 
while that humility is beautiful, it we and we don't have like a really good feminine symbol within our um, right, um, which I think is a challenge for us. Other, anybody else? Devin? I just want to thank you so much. Uh, it's very beautiful and it's helped me too. I continue to wrestle sometimes with the uh, utility of some of these stories, locating myself beyond reading it through a very doctrinal Swedenborgian lens about regeneration and helped in my own reclaiming of some of these things. Mm. I love your statement that I want to have it as a bumper sticker, maybe on my office door. Swedenborg did not intend for the new church to be an implementation of the 18th century. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm just wondering if, because this is such a rich way of uh, expanding the role of mothers with these three figures that laugh, scheme, and endure, where you would go if you were to expand this mm. in the Bible, if, if this mm. project has helped you think about you mentioned Mary or, sure. or, or other future mothers. Right. If you were to go further with this, where would you take it? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, honestly, as you sh as you probably heard, that my lecture focuses on them only this much, and then I'm giving you a lot of context around how I'm trying to approach this. I'm I'm really only scratch, starting to scratch the surface. I think it's really challenging because um, there are rich stories of women in the Bible, but they're limited. And they're and as you said, in our Swedenborgian understanding, it's it's still it's it's these great figures um, that are primarily male that represent these stages of. Um, development, but um, I, I, I think I go back to what we started, the conversation we started to kind of emerge over here, that if we're living into the new church and the, the whole point of the narrative is moving us towards this holy city where there will be equality and freedom and love, and that these stories are sort of the beginning seeds of that, that are very flawed, you know, to just acknowledge that this is depicting our very flawed nature that is not integrated and that is, um, and, to, and to really let ourselves be further beyond that, further, you know, and even, even further beyond Swedenborg, you know, a little further down the path towards this holy place and, and trust that maybe we are letting Esau lead. And, it, um, you know, I think exploring the, the reality of love and the, um, the importance of that and, and is, is at least where I want to go. I, I, I definitely, and after 11 years of ordination, struggle with this and I've had some dark moments of, we're still in this little, you know, it, I, and it, it's like in one level as Swedenborgians, we've reclaimed the Old Testament and brought it to life and given it sort of, taken it out of its kind of um, limited nature where it can really be for everyone and can be the story and yet we sometimes it still can sometimes be oppressive. Um, and so, I, I don't know, I think I, I, I wanna recognize that history, but sort of keep looking for where we could yeah. be headed. Yeah. Um, if that makes any sense. Thanks. Nancy? As a new member of the new church, I had a thought this morning that um, because I'm ignorant about all, all the interactions of the new church sure. and everything, the thought is the love mm -hmm. and the impossible as you were talking about this morning, mm -hmm. and the impossibility of being able to witness our leader of our nation become enlightened and thereby 
watch a transformation of a human being for the next four years. Hmm. And if women really want to turn away from resist and hate and criticism and horror of this man who appears to be uh, what he is, appears to be what he is, um, I think to, for us to transform to that prayer hmm. for this leader um, would be an act of love. And the one reason I did vote for him, because I didn't like the way he talked either, but the one reason I did is because I heard him say, I love the American people. And I thought he was telling the truth, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's, that's something I'm offering up to the new church too. It says when two or three are gathered in my name, there am I also. And to beg mm -hmm. for this to happen. Well, and that's one of the things I treasure most about our church is it's not them, it's not him, it's not, that's not the bad people, that's, it's all here. All right. So there is, there's an opportunity to acknowledge that what we see of incompetence is also in here too and, and try to heal that for sure. Anything else? Nancy. I just want to thank you for your lecture because my class is studying um, Jacob's dream was sweet. Oh, nice. So that's a nice background. Great. Great. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. We have a 10 minute break. Thank you.